Hi, welcome to the Big Self Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Prevost. And I'm your host, Shelly Prevost. You want to know our Big Self formula? Here it is. Big ideas plus true self equals big self. What do we mean by that? Being a leader, being really good at anything, but especially in your professional life, means being in complete command of yourself. Start with you, yourself. That's where the self part of big self comes in. It all starts with self-awareness, your ability to handle stress, understand your blind spots, be less reactive. But we also want to go somewhere from there. What do you do with all that inner knowledge? We want you to play big in your life. And that means good boundaries, having confidence, purpose, and clear direction. We focus on helping you make breakthroughs with all that self-knowledge and purpose. I am an educational psychologist, a licensed therapist, angel investor, TEDx speaker, and leadership coach. And I am an author, publisher, a doctor of creativity and writing, and an Enneagram certified practitioner. And it is our mission to bring you the most relevant and transformational resources we can find. And we give you practical, specific takeaways on topics that everyone might be talking about. But few are diving into in quite the same way. On this week's episode, we speak with Joe Sanok. In 2012, Joe launched Practice of the Practice to blog about what he was learning about business, marketing, and private practice. And since then, his income has gone up over 2,000%. In the beginning, he was making around $1,000 per month. In 2015, he grossed over 200 k And by 2019, he had sold his private practice. Now, Joe is a keynote and TEDx speaker. He's a business consultant and popular podcast. It's called The Practice of the Practice. He launched it for counselors. It is, by the way, great for entrepreneurs and solopreneurs as well. Joe is also the author of five books and has been named a top therapist resource for his podcast, blogging, and consultant services. And so we had him on today because the pandemic has forced conversations about meaningful change at work and shown us that we can live differently. And it's a remarkable consequence of the lockdown that we can experiment with different schedules continually as we work from home and have to make our own schedules. His new book, Thursday is the New Friday, is really exciting. It's in-depth. And I think that our conversation will illuminate some serious takeaways for you on this subject. It's very exciting. And we're excited to have on Joe Sanok. Oh, I'm so excited to be here with the two of you. Well, it's it's our honor and pleasure to have you and get a chance to talk with you about your new book. It really is. And we're already talking over each other because we're so excited about this topic. It really registers... uh, uh, for for I think everybody. So this is a unique moment in time. Uh, so obviously, just congratulations on your really fantastic new book. Uh, you know, let's just dive right in. You know, self help books. They you know, as you say right at the beginning, they tend to fall into one of <laughs> two categories. Uh, tell us about Thursday is the new Friday and how yours is different. 
Yeah, well, the big shift that we're seeing away from the way that the industrialists taught us to think uh, is that the old way of books was on one side, we'd have these one size fits all. Here's the five steps to productivity. It's a roadmap. It's a blueprint. It's a prescription. And you're either in or you're out. Uh, and a lot of people would read those books and feel bad about themselves and say, wait, I guess I'm out. That, that doesn't really fit me. I don't understand why that's not working for me. And they would internalize that. Or on the other side, the old way of writing was these kind of woo-woo self-help books. We're going to manifest it to the universe. We're going to do a vision board and then somehow hope we get a trip to Hawaii. And, and it's like both of those <laughs> right. things have... Wait, that doesn't work? It, it, I'm not sure it works entirely, but they both have truths that they point to. And that's kind of the new way of writing where we see a book as a menu, as a bunch of ideas that we can adapt and try and then get smarter over time in the same way that AI learns from itself over time. That's what we need to be doing as well, where we try something, we experiment, we say, oh, that didn't work. And instead of internalizing it and saying, I'm a terrible person because of this, it's no, I'm adapting, I'm changing, I'm evolving. Who I am right now is different than I was last week or a year ago. And who I'm going to be a year from now is going to be different than where I am now. And so there's a lot more agility within that method of self-help books rather than that old prescriptive way of writing books. I love it. So let's, the title of your book is Thursday is the New Friday. I love that title, first of all, and I've been thinking long and hard for a while about how do we turn our five-day work week into a four-day work week. So I would love for you just to share, um, how did you come to the book? Tell us a little bit about your clients and other professionals and the stress levels you're seeing maybe that blurs the lines between professional and personal and, and maybe how that prompted you to write this book. Yeah, you know, when you're writing a book, sometimes it's this is the natural next step on the way up and you're kind of building upon past work you've done. And other times it's more of a return home. And for me, this was definitely a return home. I remember my freshman orientation for college. I was 18, still in high school, about to graduate. And I go down right the summer before college and I'm sitting down in a small group with academic, an academic advisor, maybe three or four other students. They say, all right, we're going to make your schedule for the fall. And right away I raised my hand and I said, do I have to take classes on Friday? And they said, no, this is college. Do whatever you want. So throughout all of undergraduate and graduate school, I never had a Friday class except for one semester where I had a mandatory class. And for me, that four-day work week worked so well for me. That that was just how I did it, mostly because I was a lazy college student more than anything else. <laughs> and then, you know, my first job out of, out of school, uh, when I was negotiating with them, I said, I want to do a four-day work week. And, and so they said, sure, you can flex your hours however you want. And over time, I started to add on more hours, more days, and was quickly at a 50-plus hour work week you know, with my counseling practice and working for community mental health. But then when I left my full-time job to do consulting in 2015, I noticed that I had, again, full reign over my job, over my hours, and went back to that four-day work week. And so I did it as an experiment. That first summer of 2015, June of 2015, was the best financial month I had ever had. July of 2015 was better than that, and August was better than that. And so in looking back, I, I was able to then say, wow, when I give myself less time to do the work, I work on the best stuff. I get those things done that really, really matter. And those things that I drop the ball on, I should probably be paying someone 15 bucks an hour to do that. And so then over time, I've been able to start to work with clients and mastermind groups and in our membership community, individual coaching, and bringing out a team of coaches to also help folks that, that really want to get to that next level and think about time differently. Uh, and it's amazing to just see the results when people actually slow down and the massive work that they can then do uh, with that best use of their time. 
Yeah. And I look, well, and I think case in point here, your book is full of great story. You you tell good stories as well Mm -hmm. as giving us practical applications, which is why I feel like I'm about halfway through and it is really engaging. Uh, so just, I, I, I really do highly recommend this book. I think it's a great message for our audience and everyone. And you know, you, Joe, are kind of living proof here of like, you, you have this paradoxical relationship to work. You're all about these boundaries, which I want to get to, but you know, like, I guess, yeah, what is your message about boundaries? Because you seem to be living proof of a guy who manages aggressively hard boundaries, as well as what you call soft boundaries. And you are getting a lot done. You've got this, this, this really engaging popular podcast, the practice of the practice, everyone, if you want to check that out. Uh, But so like, I guess you're doing it now. Yeah. I think one thing that people, when they think about boundaries that they get wrong is they think that everything has to be a hard boundary. If I say I'm never eating carbs again, that you can never have a cheat day. You can never like, you always have to hold that boundary. Uh, And when we start to think about boundaries in terms of hard boundaries and soft boundaries, it then allows us to say boundaries are serving us in the same way a budget serves us. uh, It's telling our money where to go in the same way we're telling our time where to go. Uh, And when we start to do that, it becomes a lot easier to understand the value in it. Because if you don't understand the value in boundaries, then you're not going to do it. And so hard and soft boundaries. Hard boundaries are boundaries that you are going to try your darndest to never break. So I wrote a book about not working on Friday. So if I have a pre-consulting call with someone and they say, I can't wait to work with you. I want to pay, you know, this amount of money and, and Friday mornings are the only time I can meet. I will never take on that client. Uh, that's just not something that I feel I can ethically do. Also, I know that my workload for that Monday through Thursday is going to suffer because I'm going to have that, you know, one half hour meeting on a Friday that I'm going to be thinking about. And so having those very hard boundaries. Now, if practice of the practice and the website goes down and, you know, everything's on fire and social media is blowing up and people hate me and my assistant texts me and says, it's all burning. I'm not going to say let it burn till Monday. I'm going to work on it. I'm going to make sure that we get the website back up, that um, things are back in order. But then on Monday, we're going to look and say, well, why did Joe have the keys to the kingdom? Why, does, why don't other people have passwords? Why don't we have cross training here? How do we make it so that if some of these things happen, we can catch them before they light on fire? And if they are on fire, that more than just Joe can take care of this problem. And so we're going to reverse engineer it to take me out of the equation as much as possible. So with those hard boundaries, we're going to have really clear boundaries around those. And then soft boundaries are going to be more aspirational. And sometimes this is just in our personal life. So for example, every Wednesday night, I do improv. Uh, I'm in an improv troupe. It's something that I love doing. Uh, now, if something comes up with my family or if something comes up you know, with my work, I may skip improv. But for the most part, I'm going to try to make improv because I laugh harder than I do all week long. I don't need to do an ab workout on Thursday mornings. <laughs> it's just so much fun. And I mean, the ancillary benefits for my own business are there as well, but that's not why I do it. I do it because it lights me up. And so when we can start to find these things, both in our personal lives and in our business lives, that we say, I am not going to do this. This is the type of business I'm building. There are a million ways to make money and I want to do it in the way that I most enjoy. Then your best self shows up. Um, the, the way that you look at the world is different because you're excited. You're not on the social medias that you hate. You know, if you hate Instagram, don't be on Instagram. Uh, if you love Instagram, be on Instagram. Uh, find those things that you love, do those first, and then it's a lot easier to show up as your best self. I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask, you just said an ethical obligation. 
which I love that. Um, so my definition of boundaries is it's the, they're the actions we take to protect our values. And so I'm wondering, because I think a lot of people might be hearing this and thinking, what is, and how do I get there? Like, and I, a lot of times I'll start with value work, like, because if we don't know what we're protecting, then it's really easy to dismiss it. And so I'm curious about the inner work that you've done to get to the point of recognizing that ethical obligation. Like, how, has it always been that way for you? Or did you have to kind of bump up against some hard truths to, to reset? Like, how has that process been for you of establishing some healthy boundaries? Yeah, I'd say a little bit of both. I mean, I'm, I was in the Boy Scouts and I'm an Eagle Scout. So I, I had a lot of really good leaders that taught me how to think through ethical situations. Oh, uh, I come from a, a, a great family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I come from a great family. My dad's a psychologist. My mom's a nurse practitioner. Uh, and so I think I was set up in a lot of ways for success, uh, in that area where I probably have less baggage than the average person going into adulthood. And, you still have to figure out like what from my childhood and early adulthood do I want to carry forward? We don't just take it forward because we inherited it. And so for me, I think stepping even out of kind of the business world and saying, well, how do I think through being a father, for example, in regards to boundaries, in regards to the actions that I take? So I'm a single dad raising two daughters that are seven and 10. Uh, I'm primary parent and their parent or their mom pops in once a month for you know a little bit. Uh, so I know that I'm going to be the primary influence in their life. And so one way to think through my daily actions is to say, when they're 18 or decide to leave the house, whenever they're headed into adulthood, what do I want the two or three core things to be that they take? They're not going to take 26 lessons from dad. They're going to take a handful that they heard over and over and over throughout childhood. And so when I think about that, I think about, well, two girls, I want them to understand consent. I want them to understand like what their body is to them. I want them to know that they can say no to people that are trying to take advantage of them. So consent is a really big thing. And so that's going to play into my daily life. When I want to give my seven-year-old a hug goodbye in the morning when she goes off to school and she says, I don't really want a hug right now. She still has to acknowledge me with like a high five or a wave or something, but she's allowed to say when someone's allowed to touch. Right. She's allowed to say when someone touches her body. And so that informs my daily behavior. In the same way, I want them to be able to have conversations with anyone. You know, It's one thing to be great at math or English or writing or all the typical things taught in school. But when you really look at what does it take to be successful as an adult, Mostly it's conversations, being able to be likable towards people, to show interest in other people, to have conversations much different uh, with people much different than yourselves. And, and so my friends, Paul and Diane, were over the other night and my 10 year old sat down at our island in the kitchen and said, Paul, how was your week? I was blown away. I'm like, she's just like digging in. Like, what have yeah. you been up to? Uh, it's like she's a 26 year old young woman. Um, and so That's thinking awesome. through those sorts of things and then saying, well, how does my daily behavior then set them up for these core items? That's the same way I think through my business items as well. What's the impact that I'm making with my business? How I'm helping therapists and coaches and, and small business leaders to grow in different ways. Same sort of thing. Having those guiding principles then teaches me Here's what I'm going to do this week. It's not even a question. In the same way, it's not a question when my daughter wants, doesn't want to hug. I say, okay, that's fine. I then am able to do that in the business world as well. Yeah. That's good. Well, that's phenomenal. You know, one of the things we, we like to give some takeaways to our audience. And one takeaway that I, I found useful in listening to some of your other interviews, uh, you discuss the 
you know, that we can find our sprint type. And so there's a sprint model. I had never heard about this. And uh, maybe when it comes to establishing these hard and soft boundaries and establishing a little bit of the mindset that goes along with those, could you tell us about like how one can be more effective in certain different kinds of ways uh, through measuring themselves through this sprint model? Yeah. So kind of the big picture overview uh, of the book is that we start internally with our internal inclinations. We make sure that our insides are okay before we start doing the productivity work. Because if if we aren't okay on the inside and then we're hyperproductive, we might be working on the wrong stuff. So we start internally. Then Speaking we move into language. slowing down. Yeah. And, and then you slow down uh, because we know our best ideas come when we slow down, not when we're stressed out and maxed out. So after we've done those two things, then we get into you're absolutely going to kill it. You're going to go sprint. You're going to get things done. So I want to describe the sprint types with the assumption we've already gone through those first two steps. So you're at your sprint types in the same way that we have personality types. It could be the Enneagram. It could be the Myers-Briggs. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's also sprint types. And the research is showing us that people think differently in the ways that they naturally sprint, uh, which is interesting because in the past you may have heard, oh, batch it, batch it. And then you try that and you're like, that doesn't really work for me. Well, it's probably because it doesn't match your sprint type. Mm-hmm. So there's two components to your sprint type. The first is the type of work that we're doing. And the second part is when we're doing that work. So first we look at a time block sprinter. So this is a, a very traditional sprinter. So you have one type of work that you're doing, usually over a four hour or so period of time that's broken up into 20 to 30 minute segments. So for example, every Thursday, I was working on Thursday as the new Friday. I would only work on the book. I'd block out my schedule. I had this whole routine. So I'd drop into flow state quicker. And that's what I was doing on that day. I wasn't bouncing between consulting clients and podcasts and writing the book. It was Thursday was the writing day. So in that situation, I was a time block sprinter, whereas other people are task switch sprinters. So a task switch sprinter is somebody that's going to still have those 20 to 30 minute segments, but they're going to change what they're working on in those periods of time. This is not multitasking. We know that's a myth. We know that it's not effective. People feel like they get a lot done, but they're actually not getting as much done as if they do this task switching. So you might say, okay, we have a podcast interview and that's going to, we're going to prep for 20 minutes for that. And then for 20 minutes, we're going to write and sketch out a blog post. And then for 20 minutes, we're going to follow up with all these networking leads of people that we want to connect with and get on their podcasts. Or you know, And so you're sketching out step by step, what are the big picture things that you need to work on? But you have that variety. So a lot of people that are in the entrepreneur entrepreneurial world, um, they have this squirrel syndrome, ADHD bouncing all over the place. And then they try to sprint and do one thing for four hours and they can't do it. So they find that being a task switch sprinter is a lot easier because they get that variety that their body naturally craves. So then the second and, part is when, sorry, go ahead. No, go oh, ahead. Yeah, no, I didn't know there's the yeah, second no, part. Yeah, I, I do have a question, but I'm going to let you finish. Okay. So then the second part is when do we do this? So an automated sprinter is someone that is going to have this automated in their calendar. So that's what I did with the book where every Thursday it was just blocked out. No one could get my calendar. There were no Calendly links that they could schedule. It was just blocked out and it's on repeat. Every Thursday we're doing this one thing. So it's just automated over and over and over. And this may be that for two hours on Tuesday morning, you do something specific. It may be that on Wednesday afternoon, you do something specific that you're intentionally blocking it out on usually a weekly basis. 
And then the other type of sprinter in regards to time is an intensive sprinter. This type of person has to get away. They have to go rent an Airbnb or a hotel or go to a friend's house or somehow get out of their environment and then go work on it for a few days. So they're having an intensive or a retreat model. Um, and so they may within that work on a variety of different things, or they may work on one thing, like I'm going to work on a manuscript or a proposal for a book. And, and so figuring that out is really helpful for them getting more done during that period of time. So I'm just, um, <laughs> how do we figure out what kind of sprint type we are? Because <laughs> I'm listening to yeah. all these and I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah. I, I like yeah, all of them. I, I, well, and I think I need all of them depending on, like you mentioned, flow state. And we're in the process of starting to write a book. And, and I know, I know myself well enough to know that I need to dip into that Mm-hmm. time. So maybe it is a variety, like it's dependent on whatever task is in front of us. Is that, and, is that fair? Well, and I want to add too that you had that opportunity to go write a book in the woods for six days. That wasn't as effective, well, and nearly after, as effective. I came home a day early, <laughs> honestly, because I was like, there's way too many spiders in this cabin. Like I can't, I can't focus. I can't concentrate. That's a different issue. Maybe. Right. Yeah. But yeah. So how do we well, figure think, this out? Is it like, well, I think that you're tapping... Yeah, you're tapping into kind of one of the core concepts as we move away from the industrialists, and that's experimentation. Uh, and so you will have your core sprint type, but then there's also going to be situations that require uh, that you adapt that in different ways. And so understanding what your core uh, sprint type is is really important. For me, I know that I much prefer to have it automated in my calendar, and uh, I'm doing one task for a period of time. But does that mean that I don't also use the other sprint types at, at different times? No, of course I do. I want to use all those tools that are at my disposal. Um, But even starting to say, well, how many words do I want to write per day? So when I was writing Thursdays, the new Friday, I knew what number I needed to be at by September 1st. So I signed the contract in April of 2020. I wanted to have the manuscript to them a month early, and I wanted to be about 20,000 words above what they asked. So they had editing room. Um, Mm -hmm. So I wanted 80,000 words within that five months or so. So I broke it down week by week how many words I needed to be at and whether or not I was ahead. Or And I kind of gamified it. Uh, So then being able to know, okay, I tried this technique uh, that worked that didn't work. I'm going to keep at it. And so throughout the process, I'm learning the neural research as I'm writing the book, applying that same neural research to my own flow state while I'm writing. It was this very kind of meta thing where some tools like I had to protect my brain in the mornings. So I wouldn't look at texts. I wouldn't look at my email. I wouldn't look at the news before I started to write. My brain was fresh mm. going into it. I changed the lighting in my office. And so I had my my lighting that was for my writing. Uh, I moved my chair to a different part of the room. So my brain knew this is the writing space. I had a whiteboard that the Thursday before, I always sketched out the next chapter's main points so that my brain for that week could just kind of mull it over and think, what questions do I have? What am I interested in? Um, what are things that I haven't thought of yet? And my brain was just kind of working on that behind the scenes for that week. So then when I sit down and I put on my headphones that I only used for writing and had the playlist I only used for writing, I dropped right into flow state because my brain had been working on it subconsciously throughout the week. I knew what the main points were of this next chapter. I knew where I wanted to discover new things walking into that chapter and then could just start writing right away instead of having to do some writing warm ups or those sorts of things. Do you work at home? Is that where your I, your main work I is? I do. I do. do you, and to have... <laughs> yeah. I, so I'm just imagining people are... I know a lot of people are working at home still and probably will continue to. So how do you manage just inevitable personal professional clashes 
that happen? Is it, um, yeah, just if you could say something about that too. Yeah. So I have immense support in regards to my parents live in town and my sister lives in my backyard. And so being a single dad, uh, I've definitely been surrounded by people that care about me and my kids. So I'll start with that. I'm not just, you know, sitting here by myself, raising these kids completely on my own, um, which is amazing to have that. Um, I think also having very clear bookends for your family and friends. So when it was work time and they had to do, my daughters had to do certain, you know, homeschool or things like that during the pandemic, I would say, daddy's going to work. I'd give them a hug like I was leaving. Uh, all right. This is your hug. Um, when the door's shut, I'm working. It's like I'm gone. Um, unless there's an emergency, please don't knock on the door. And so then I would go up, I'd be in my office, I'd shut the door. I am fortunate enough to have a dedicated space that I can use specifically for my work. Um, and then, you know, when I'd come down from lunch, I'd say, daddy's home for lunch. Uh, they'd come give hugs and then uh, we'd have lunch together and then same sort of thing, going back to work. And then I'm done with work. I, I was never interrupted throughout the entire pandemic while I was in my office. Uh, there was never an emergency. They were self-sufficient. They were able to figure it out. Um, and I think they built some autonomy in that too. Uh, and, and granted, my kids also are the kind of kids that they listen very well. They want to follow instructions. There's a lot of kids that would get into things that they couldn't do that. Um, but I do think that no matter what your child or partner or you know, friends, whoever's in your house, whatever their temperament is, Setting those expectations as to when you're home and when you're working is really important because my daughters don't want to interrupt my work. And so if I'm on my phone at seven at night and checking email and doing things and they're like, hey, dad, and I snap at them, that's on me because I didn't say, hey, I need to work for a couple minutes. Just give me 15 minutes. I really need to take care of this because uh, those things come up. So I think the person that's doing the work needs to be the one that says, here's the boundary. Here's the book. And let me inform you so that you can adapt your behavior and know what my expectation is. And I, I, you mentioned consent earlier, and I just the thought I had was you're modeling boundaries. Like that's in it, so it's such an important part of even how you're parenting. And so you're creating this environment where, you know, boundaries, saying no is not a dirty word, which I think is a lot of parents kind of feel this guilt or this impulse to to kind of always be a present, involved parent. And so I love that that you're creating that expectation and modeling it for them too. So, yeah, I like well, that. And one, one little technique that I've developed with them, and this was actually in response to evaluating how I was parented. When I was a kid, there was yes and there was no. I'm playing Nintendo. It's dinner time. I can't say, can I have five more minutes? It's you get in here now. It's dinner time. Um, and to me, most of the world has a lot of wiggle room, has a lot of gray space. Uh, it's not always that clear cut. And so with my daughters, I say, you always have three choices. You can say yes and just listen. Uh, you're not going to get in trouble for listening. Uh, you can say no and almost always get in trouble. Or you can respectfully advocate for your position. So if you're in the middle of a video game, if you're doing something, you're like, Dad, Dad there's two minutes left on this show. Can I please finish this show? If you do that in a respectful way, and it's not something like, we got to get in the car now. Uh, okay, yeah, great. You respectfully advocated for your position. Uh, but then there's times where I say, I'm sorry, we have to go right now or we're going to be late. I need you to get your shoes on and get in the car. Um, and that's not all the time, though. So then when, when I say that, they know, okay, ooh, I got to go get in the car right now. Um, so then it allows them, yes. So it allows them to actually advocate for what they want in a respectful way so that they aren't just in that yes, no territory most kids are in. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's good. I think a, a lot of kids want, um, 
would want parenting like that. That sounds, <laughs> sounds informed and healthy. Yes. Um, yeah. We won't try to get into video games for boys. Let's, let's avoid that <laughs> right now. Um, but here, so do you really do like with that, I, you do a great job in, in taking us back and do a little bit of history, painting a little bit of a picture of the industrialist mindset. Um, I like where you start in May, 1926. Um, could you give us, so this paints a little bit of a picture for where we're going to head uh, for another question or so. Could you tell us a little bit about the industrialist mindset? How was it just even necessarily a bad thing that Henry Ford was establishing? And then we um, have a question about our hustle culture from there. Yeah. So if we look at how people were living in the late 1800s, early 1900s, the average person was working 10 to 14 hours a day, six to seven days a week. It was a farmer's schedule. Even if you didn't work on a farm, people were just working all the time. So in May 1926, Henry Ford introduced the 40 hour work week at Ford. And his main goal was to sell more cars to Ford employees. And his belief was that people aren't going to buy a car to get to work faster. But if they have a weekend where they can go, go do a whole bunch of things, go see friends, and family and go for hikes, they would definitely buy a car. And it worked. Uh, and so we see that that 40-hour work week really starts in May of 1926. Uh, and it's interesting because he chose May because it was exactly 40 years after the Haymarket uh, uprising in Chicago, which was one of the largest mm. protests about the 40-hour work week. Uh, all these people had moved from Europe uh, to help rebuild Chicago after the fire. And they found that mm. their life was worse off in Chicago than it had been back in Europe. Uh, and so it's interesting that Ford, this industrialist, also chooses a day that uh, really was enshrined as a day of protest against kind of the way that people were being used and abused in factories. And so as we see this change, the industrialists brought us some great things for the time. This was a huge step forward for the evolution of people, for the evolution of business, the way we think about the work-life balance. Uh, this was a really good thing at the time. Uh, but we see that kind of throughout that 20th century, people are viewed as machines. You can plug them in. Uh, it's an assembly line men- mindset. We see it in our school system. We see it in our business world. Uh, we see it in so many different ways. And in the 80s and 90s, we start to see that really start to break down. We see the rise of Casual Fridays. ABC starts their TGIF uh, series. All sorts of things start to indicate that Fridays are really moving more into the weekend. Uh, it's when we have baby showers at work. It's when we do cheesy team building activities, uh, all these things that Friday starts to move closer and closer into the weekend. And then the, the pandemic of 2020 and 2021 just completely blows up the whole industrialist model, showing us that there are many ways that we can work that were beyond kind of our current assumptions of 2019 and, and prior to that. Yeah. So talk about that a little bit. Like, what are you seeing the shift? Like, I, I just was telling Chad before we got on that there, we're in it. Like we are in the middle of a ginormous shift happening in work, economies, like all of it, and schools, how it affects education systems. Um, and I, I'm really interested in how it will all shake out, how this is going to settle. And I don't think we'll know for several years, many years maybe. So what are your predictions? Like what are you seeing as we're in the middle of this and um, what do you anticipate might be things that will will change as we move forward? Yeah, we, we definitely are in the messy middle, similar to 1926, where there's people that just want to go back to the old way and are fighting to try to get butts in the chair for 40 hours. And then there's other people that are realizing, I work for an industrialist. They may not use that, that terminology, uh, but that's why we're seeing this great resignation, is that people are saying, 
I can't do this anymore. This is not my highest calling. This is not the best use of my talents. I cannot work for someone that treats me in this way. Uh, and, and so as we see this great resignation, as the post-pandemic generation, we have a choice right now where we can say, let's go back to 2019 and say those are the best mental health outcomes. Those are the best stress outcomes. The best way to live our life was 2019 right before the pandemic. Or we can say there's a better way. Uh, and when I look at the next 30 to 50 years and the challenges that we have ahead of us, whether that's global warming or social issues or future pandemics or, you know, the rise of AI, do we want to be as burned out and stressed out as we were in 2019? Or do we need to have our healthiest, most creative, most productive generation be able to address these huge challenges that humanity is going to be facing? And so we have the opportunity right now as the post-pandemic generation to say, yes, Henry Ford in 1926 had a huge step forward for the evolution of humans and the evolution of business. We have that unique opportunity right now as this generation. And we have a choice to say, we're just going to go along with the old way of doing things or we're going to reinvent things. And to see companies like Kickstarter or Shopify uh, or countries like New Zealand or Spain uh, or Portugal, um, you know, Finland, Iceland, they're all trying the four-day work week and, and saying, let's experiment with this. Let's look at the outcomes. Let's see if people can be more productive and healthier and happier. And we're seeing that overwhelmingly that's true, that people are healthier and happier and they're getting as much or more done in those 32-hour weeks. Yeah. And I think that, you know, as your book demonstrates, the research backs that up in a lot of ways. And there is not even a one size fits all depending on your profession. There's a lot of different, you know, factors that go into maybe even like the, the knowledge economy as, as people talk about, you know, but I, I am like, I still think it is going to be hard for our, our culture you know, to, to make the shift for one reason, you know, speaking of the Enneagram, like the Enneagram three, uh, the, the achiever is probably the least likely to be in the DSM. Uh, is it the five now? Or mm-hmm. the, yeah, because we, we value. We're a three culture. We're a three culture. We're an achiever, performer, high six, like climb the ladder, look good, be good, like achieve everything culture. And yeah, and, and I could, you know, your book doesn't like, I like, I appreciate the way your book doesn't try to take on, oh, I'm, you know, you're like, I'm not trying to take on changing company culture. It's going to be with the individual. Um, it's a process, but how do we... Well, can I can I say okay. one thing okay. about you that? Because yeah. I was just thinking about this. I'm thinking like we're a three culture. Yeah, the U.S. is. Um, and what do I do with my Enneagram three clients? Well, a lot of it is around um, tapping into some deeper, unfelt, unacknowledged um, emotions or sensitivities. Like a lot of the work is getting in touch with their softer side. <laughs> And re-examining expectations and limitations. And so I think that, I think, I wonder collectively, like there's a, you know, the collective unconscious piece of this is that as a culture, we're all kind of doing that. We're all like a lot of the work we're, we're doing right now with organizations is around soft skills training with this great resignation a lot of managers and leaders are saying how do we keep people what's you know how do we keep turnover low and it is a lot about emotional intelligence and soft skills and so there is this this um, need for that right now and also re-examining these expectations that just 
are not sustainable, whether we're an individual or a company or a culture. I think there's a lot of people taking a second look at that. Yeah, I mean, I'm an Enneagram three. And so yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I notice that natural <laughs> tendency. But I think for me, as if we're specifically looking at the Enneagram, looking at an Enneagram three in health versus, you know, kind of the whole spectrum. Um, you know, if we start when we're not healthy and Enneagram threes, uh, yeah, you're going to be doing all of these things, all of this achievement for the external validation for yes. all these reasons that have nothing to do with you because you think it's going to make you feel better to have all this affirmation, then you're not going to feel better and you're going to have to achieve more instead of doing that inner work. And so for mm. me, the, the biggest shift uh, that I write about in the book in particular is that we don't have to, by slowing down, give up the profits. We don't have to give up the achievement. If anything, it helps, helps us achieve more because our best selves show up. Our bigger selves show up because we're rested. We're not stressed. We took time to actually be with the people we love being around on the weekend. So even if we have a two-day weekend, just say, well, what are the boundaries I'm going to set for myself? When do I check my email? When do I check my phone? When do I play games on my phone? How do I intentionally use the weekend to prep for the future week rather than have the weekend be in response to the previous week? And so mm. as achiever types, if we just go, 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 we're doing a lot of work and putting a lot of energy into things that just really aren't moving the needle forward. And so for me, <clears throat> viewing it through that lens that this actually does help us achieve more, it does help us increase increase profits, and it's no longer at the expense of our own health, our own you know sanity, the way that we have relationships. It's no longer at that expense. So let me ask you this, as a, I think, pretty healthy Enneagram 3, what it sounds so. like... <laughs> What, what's your, how do you define success? I mean, for me, success is about being able to do what I want to impact the world. Like that freedom mm-hmm. and that independence, uh, for me is more important than any bank account or accolades from some big media organization. Those are all things that can help me achieve that final goal. And and so that idea of saying, I want to be able to play Mario Kart with my daughter on a Thursday night guilt-free. I want to be able to go for a hike on a Saturday morning with a cup of coffee with my friend uh, guilt-free. That idea of I constantly have to be producing, that's an industrialist mindset. And I still have to fight that on a regular basis. Uh, This last weekend, uh, the girls were with their mom. And I slept in till 1030 in the morning. And I woke up a few times before that thinking I should, I should go work on the lawn. I should go clean the garage. I should produce, 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 produce. And it was like this little Henry Ford was in my brain saying, don't sleep, don't sleep, don't sleep. And I'm like, no, I have gone through a book launch and I just have been running full tilt. I need to just allow my body to rest. And so I did. I stayed in my pajamas till one in the afternoon just because I could. And so it's like one of those things that you have to come combat. You have to push back on and it becomes a habit over time, but it's always going to creep back in. Yeah. There's almost like shame around like being, you know, slowing down in your pajamas Mm -hmm. on on a weekday. Mm -hmm. We'll we'll cut that part if you want us to. No, no, (laughs) no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, be be proud of that. Right. Exactly. It's part of the message. And actually, of course, the industrialist mindset was an improvement over the previous, the previous century in in many, uh, in many ways. I do. I think it's going to be tough though. This next upgrade this next, because it really is dismantling some very, very core beliefs and values in this culture. Uh, I, I, we're, I, we're both from startups, and um, a couple of my friends are, a few of my friends are starting a startup incubator here in town. 
and high tech, high growth, um, and just knowing the culture that that, mm-hmm. that surrounds that and the, the mentalities and the belief systems. And there's a part of me that's just, you know, so excited for them, but also like, oh, <laughs> there's a dread of like knowing what they have to kind of drudge through. Um, and it's just, it's just really intrinsic. So I think it's going to be a long kind of slog for us to really change those mindsets. Yeah, and I think it's yeah. going to be challenging in certain cultures of business differently than others. So the startup culture, if you are always in that startup mode uh, and you're always doing the 70-hour weeks, launching a new startup, um, and you you feel good about that, you enjoy it, uh, you then have probably overvalued the amount of ego that you're putting into these businesses being successful. So then what happens when these successful, these businesses are not successful and you've put 70 hours a week in and your relationships have fallen apart and your health is bad, you're not going to feel real great about yourself. Uh, and so if we can see even in startup culture, a season, of course, there's going to be times when maybe you have to work a lot harder than you normally have worked. I'm not saying that we're going to always work the exact same number of hours per week, but to say, is this going to be your lifestyle? And is that the lifestyle you want? I don't think a lot of people are even intentional to ask that question. And so some people may say, you know what? I do want to work 70 hours a week. That is my highest calling. I want to do that. Mm -hmm. Okay. At least you've taken the time to be intentional around it. Whereas Mm -hmm. a lot of people may just be doing what they think they're supposed to do to be successful. there could be better ways to do it that aren't going to make you burn out in so many other different ways in your life. As we're saying, some things might be easier said than done. Like um, you, you mentioned you have a dedicated office and some support systems. Um, Shelly and I have been working at home with each other for a year and a half and can't wait for us to take turns getting out of the house. Um, That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah. well, how about we, we boil it all down to this one uh, last question. And that would be just like, you know, what would you say, Joe, to leaders and teams about beginning to experiment with a new schedule and, and how to assess what is successful and, and what needs tweaking? Yeah. So for most teams, uh, they're going to walk through the same process. So the first thing you want to do is to get small groups together that have the same role. So we're talking three to six people that have the same role. You don't want to have someone from marketing, someone from HR. You don't want it to be a mixed up team. Next, that team's going to look at first, what are their hard and soft boundaries that they are going to set as a team, specifically around when they're going to work and when they're not going to work? Are we going to say after six o'clock, no emailing at all so we don't miss out on a bunch of conversations? Are we saying that on the weekend, you need to check your email a couple times? What is the culture for our small team that we want to create? And then what's the KPI, the key performance indicator that we're already getting judged by? Uh, what is the thing that this team's already doing? If you're a sales team, it's probably sales numbers. If you're a customer service team, it's probably customer satisfaction or number of resolved cases. What are you already being judged by? And then you're working with your supervisor to say, here's our plan, uh, making sure that they're signing off on it. Uh, and then you're going to enter into that plan. And then every week on your first day of the week, for most of that's going to be Monday, you're going to have a quick 15-minute standing meeting where you talk through how did we do on our boundaries, first and foremost, because that's where it's going to fall apart. You're going to get sucked back into that old way of thinking. Did we check our emails? Yeah. And so did Jim from accounting send us an email at nine o'clock on Wednesday? Well, maybe Jim gets some really important information on Wednesday evenings that we all need for Thursday morning. So we need to all commit to checking our email from nine to nine 15 uh, every Wednesday evening. We're now being intentional with it. And we're saying we're going to adapt and grow and change. We aren't going to have these boundaries just be stuck because we said that these are the boundaries we're shooting for. 
for, we're going to be realistic as we grow with it. And, and then we're going to say, or maybe Jim from accounting needs a reminder, hey, stop sending emails at night. Um, you know, you can do that Thursday morning or schedule it for Thursday morning. And then secondly, we're going to look at those KPIs. Were we up? Were we down? If we're up, uh, what did we do? What are we going to continue to do? And if we're down, what are we going to do to address that this coming week? And then we're going to let that supervisor know those things on a weekly basis, just a quick email of the summary dashboard of how the experiment's going. Uh, you want these experiments to last two to three months so that you can go through a number of iterations of this. At the end of each month, then, you're reporting out a 360 review on what's going well from a qualitative side. So I got to go to my son's baseball practice for the first time in years. I, it was great. So you're speaking to the heart. And then also, let's talk about the numbers. Are we up? Are we down? Uh, what are the challenges we're seeing? And then at the end, we're going to do a full review uh, that then if your supervisor's ever backed into the corner by their supervisor and saying, well, why'd you do this? They can say, here, look, like the data from this three-month experiment actually shows that their numbers were up. They were happier. Uh, and they're also saying that they'd stay here a lot longer if they had a four-day work week. Um, so then they have the data to defend that and then potentially do a second experiment. Here's where I'm, my head goes for a minute. Um, back to the startup, back to the burnout, the mindset of getting to the point where you allow yourself and, and allow your team to experiment. Um, I think there's so many people that foreclose the possibility out of fear, out of um, KPIs, out of, you know, investors wanting return on their investment, out of like just this very entrenched belief system. So how do you, how do we back up? And, and I'm even thinking about, you know, talking with my friends and talking with organizations who just completely defend the current system as the way. This is the only way. So how do you kind of walk people into this process just to be open to it? Yeah. I mean, let's be realistic. There were people in 1926 that said, what, you want me to stop having people work 10 to 14 hours a day, six to seven days a week? You're crazy. Yes. Uh, I mean, yeah. people didn't buy into it just because Henry Ford started it. So there are going to be people that say this won't work and they're just going to continue. So to me, it's more important to say, who are the people in the middle that are kind of on the fence? Let's start there. Let's start with the people Ooh, that, I love that like, I want to try it. Uh, and then we can get to a, a critical tipping point. And, and so I just, there are people that I'm never going to convince of this, nor do I want to even put my energy into those people. Uh, but let's back up and just say, well, is it true, say in startup culture, that you're always going to do your best work if you just keep working? Um, you know, the University of Illinois evaluated vigilance decrement. So vigilance, how well you pay attention to something, decrement meaning going down over time. So how well people do on a really boring task over time, they experience vigilance decrement. So they're doing worse at the end of that boring task than they did at the beginning. But they found that if they take a break every 20 minutes, even a one minute break can eliminate vigilance decrement. And so mm. finding these hacks where you can do better work during that time and to say, sure, maybe in the startup, there is just a checklist of things that we need to get done. And the more hours we work, the faster we're going to get through those things. Um, that may be true in certain circumstances. But is that the way that we're going to run this startup for the rest of this startup's life? Or is there a certain point when we say this major project is done, now we're going to get to a phase where we want to have our most creative, innovative people, uh, where we want to have them not just be burned out and stressed out and sleeping under their desk at night. Uh, we want to be able to say, what, where's the end point here? Um, what's the culture that we want to create as a startup that's going to attract top talent instead of people? people that just want to work hard and burn out. Yeah. And that's a lot of the key. I think a lot of these folks are thinking about is the talent piece because a lot of the mm -hmm. engineers I work with, they can work anywhere. And they're like, right. why would I come here and do this? Oh, yeah. And then I could make, you know, the same or more uh, in a much more 
thriving culture. And I think it points to that's the great resignation. A lot of people have yeah, options. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Joe, uh, how do we get to the revenue revenue goals that we want uh, and, you know, and hit our goals while still managing these great boundaries? Yeah, I would go back to that point that when we set the boundaries and slow down, we do bigger and better and more creative work. Um, that you have ideas of how to expand differently, to go from one-on-one work to one to a few to one to many, to make it more scalable for yourself, depending on what your particular business is. And so if we say, if you're doing everything in a 40-hour week and you have 20 tasks to do, and you give yourself four days instead of five, and now you only do 12 to 15 of those 20 tasks, are you going to choose your best 12 to 15 or your worst? Of course, you're going to pick your best. You're going to make sure, uh, you know, billing goes out. You're going to make sure that that, you know, new client that might, you know, double the revenue that you're going to meet with them. You're going to week after week, put your energy into the very best use of your time. And those last five tasks that maybe you drop the ball on is a great opportunity to say, well, do I even need to do those tasks? Maybe I can just totally eliminate them. Maybe I can hand them off to a team member or hire someone uh, at a much reduced rate than my own. And so when you start to rein in these boundaries and say, what's the kind of work that I want to do and what's the kind of slowdown that I want to do? You then start to do your best work over and over and have that best energy put into that best work, which over and over I see meaning that people can scale at a much faster rate than if they kept on the burnout culture. It's about Parkinson's law, right? Like we, we work expands to fill the time allotted for its completion. So however much time, if you give it five days, it's going to take five days. If you give your brain a task and your team a task to reimagine what it would look like to do it in four days, I think people rise to that because I think ultimately that's what we want. Yeah. And to say, are we 100% productive during five days anyway? Uh, probably not. Exactly. And if people are going to say, well, I, I can spend my free time around the water cooler or I can spend my free time with my family doing what I want to do or even grocery shopping. Uh, um, where do you want to spend your free time? Our audio cut out at this point, but we thought it was a good note to end on. How do you want to spend your free time? And now for the big self takeaway. Even before the pandemic gripped the world, we had become a nation suffering unprecedented levels of stress and burnout. Now, over a year into our reworked lives with remote work, childcare duties, and nearly every other aspect of our daily routine completely upended, the stress of trying to balance our professional and personal lives is at an all-time high. But Joe Sanok tells us there's another way. In his new book, which we are reading and loving, he argues that the traditional five-day work week with its deep historical roots and strong reinforcement from the bygone industrial era is no longer serving us well. He points to study after study, including one that spanned 32 years, that shows working more increases our risk of chronic disease. And who wants to live with the unnecessary stress, especially when it doesn't even result in actual higher productivity? When we actively practice to manage different routines with a mindset focused on clear boundaries, whether they are what we call hard or soft, we can do three things at once. We can get more done in a shorter amount of time. And with that save time, we have more time for the important people in our lives, as well as other things we want to do with our time. And as a result of that, Here's where the third thing emerges. We will find our work more purposeful 
and we will be much less likely to burn out. During this transitional period of managing our personal and work-life boundaries, this is a message that we'll be carrying with us throughout the rest of this year.